Do not disbelieve, but believe. These are the words that we just heard the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ speak to his disciple Thomas. He posed these words to Thomas, and these are the words that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ speaks and poses to you and to me constantly. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Today and every day, the Lord Jesus Christ posing the words, do not disbelieve, but believe. The human heart's disposition towards God is never neutral. We are either moving towards him in faith, in belief, or we are actively disbelieving in one form or another, as we will see in our text this morning. Now we are picking up where we left off. Preston preached a marvelous sermon series. He called it the COVID-19 sermon series. And now he's gone back and resumed preaching through the book of Matthew. And here, uh, as Preston's been preaching through a gospel book, the book of Matthew, Craig has been preaching through a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews. So he'll be returning to that. And I've been preaching through an Old Testament book, the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're picking up where we left off with Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we will see in this chapter, active disbelief is described on the one hand as folding one's hands, that is indifference, passivity, or on the other hand as two hands full of toil and a striving after wind, that is, panic and a frenzied and meaningless activity. But then we will see that faith is described, neither as folded empty hands or as two striving frantic hands, but as a simple handful of quietness. Faith, a handful of quietness resting in what God has done, resting in who he is, resting in who he is and what he promises to do, resting in who he is and what he is now doing, present and active in his love for you. So this morning, let me ask you a question. As Craig mentioned at the beginning of the worship service, it's, this is, like he said, for me as well, this is my first time back in the building in almost two months. And I see a few people in the flesh, and they mean more to me now than ever before. <laughs> but it's odd and strange being here, this season that we're in. So let me ask you a question. Not so much about a season of your life, but about a particular punctiliar moment. What was the worst moment of your life? I'm not asking about like a season or, you know, grieving the loss of a, but, but a particular punctiliar moment. I don't know if there's one that stands out for you as the worst single moment of your life. Well, one definitely stands out for me. Some years ago when I was in the Navy, I was playing soccer for my ship's soccer team and I broke my arm. And uh, so I had surgery and metal plates put in my arm. 
and my arm was in a cast for two weeks. And then it came time to remove the cast, and my arm had been set like this, and they were going to remove the cast and then reset my arm like this with a new cast. So they took the cast off, and they began to do physical therapy on my arm. And my wife, Troy, was in the room with me, and the doctor, and a nurse, and they began working on my arm and un breaking up the scar tissue and just bending my arm and bending my arm and bending my arm. And they kept bending it and it just got so bad. I was like pounding, it was like It was the most painful experience. I'm gr grateful for it because now I have full use of my arm, but it was painful and I was screaming out in pain. And finally the doctor says, okay, we're through. We're through, Mrs. Hutchinson, you can now go out in the waiting room. We're gonna put the new cast on and we'll be with you in a minute. And as soon as the door closed behind my wife, the doctor turned to me and said, we're not through. <laughs> that was the single worst moment of my life. That particular punctiliar moment of just utter despair in that moment. Well, what, what got me through that moment? What, what gets you through these moments? I mean, in my case, in that situation, I was a naval officer in a naval hospital. I really had no choice but to endure and continue on with the treatment. Um, what gets you through these moments? What get, whether they're a moment or a season, this is the question that the writer of Ecclesiastes is posing in his whole book, but especially here in chapter 4. Why endure anything? Why endure the hard moments and the hard seasons? Why? What gets you through? Do you just fold your hands and quit? Or do you strive after everything, looking for two hands full of wind? What is it that gets you through? What motivates us in this life and to get us through hard moments and hard sufferings? This is what Ecclesiastes is for, is, is all about. Let's, let's pray together, please. Lord, we pray. This is our prayer of illumination. This is our recognition and our confession, O oh Lord, that these words you have given us in your scriptures will stay on the page and be meaningless to us and to our hearts and to our souls unless you illuminate us. It is not your word that needs to be lit up. It is already living and active. It is our hearts. So illuminate our hearts by your presence that we would see what you are saying to us in this word from Ecclesiastes and the book of John and elsewhere. Open up our hearts and minds to your truth this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, you, as we're returning now in the book of Ecclesiastes, you may remember it's a unique book. It, there's a unique beauty to this book. Um, I said the first week I was preaching through this book, it, it was reminding me that the, an assignment to read the book of Ecclesiastes was actually my very first assignment as a college freshman at Duke University in the last century. In English class, the book of Ecclesiastes was given to us as this work of world literature that was beyond compare in its beauty and its way of phrasing things. So this book, if you may remember, was composed by an author who identifies himself with the, with the word, the term koaleth. 
which is a Hebrew verb, or it's the noun form of a verb that means to congregate. So the one who congregates. And so most English translations call koaleth the preacher, the one that gathers people together. And uh, I have been able to gather one, two, three, four, five, five of us today in this room. This is a remarkable thing, but there, hopefully there's many, many more of you gathered elsewhere and out, outside of things. So Koaleth, the gatherer, the preacher, is the one that wrote this book. And it's, but the way he also identifies himself, you may remember, by the details of who he was in his life, is it's almost entirely certain that it's Solomon himself, King Solomon, who wrote this book. So this book was written nearly a thousand years before the coming of Christ, nearly 3,000 years ago. And yet, in this contemporary age, it is still seen as this remarkably vivid and contemporary work. It enters into reality. We have also used the image of Koalath as something of a test pilot who goes there, goes to places so that we don't have to go to those places, explores things to see if there can be meaning and purpose found there, and when the answer is no, we are rescued from having to explore meaninglessness and drugs and illicit sex and all sorts of things that Koaleth almost certainly uh, experimented with. He's a test pilot. He's gone there in search of things. And he, 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 he straps himself in and he goes head on, not just in the search of pleasure, but in the search of meaning. And almost nothing undermines our belief that there is true meaning in this world than the real existence of suffering, of these punctiliar moments or these seasons of hardship and suffering. So he goes there as well. He's a brave test pilot who goes right into the heart of suffering and meaninglessness. And we see him doing that here in this chapter, in chapter 4. One last comment about review of the book of Ecclesiastes is this phrase that's repeated throughout the book dozens and dozens of times, and it's repeated four times in our chapter, is a phrase that he uses to, to summarize what he's getting at here. He talks about life under the sun, under the sun. And if all there is is life under their sun, under the sun, then we really are lost. There really is no meaning. Life really, we really should just fold our hands and just give up. Or just pass, actively and frantically strive after meaninglessness and try to catch wind. If there's no meaning, that's really our only choices. But... There is another reality. This is what Koaleth is all about. But as he goes into this reality of under the sun, he's of course not alone in describing the nature of the hardship of this present age. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as you may remember in the book of Galatians, refers to this present age, not just as this present age, but as what? This present evil age. This is an age where there are things like unique new viruses that kill hundreds of thousands. This is a present evil age. And so what do we do? Do we ignore it 
Or do we strap in and follow the wisdom of Koaleth and see what he has to say to us about how to live, how to endure in this present age, this age in between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ? So looking now at this chapter, there's at least four realities of our fallen world of life under the sun that Koaleth engages with here in this chapter. So let's look at the first three verses. The first reality is the reality of the phrase he uses here, the tears of the oppressed. The tears of the oppressed. There has been a remarkable solidarity, hasn't there, in this COVID-19 season among really everyone <laughs> because we're all fighting, as we've been, we've been calling it, an invisible enemy. And, and um, when there's this invisible enemy and we're, we're all oppressed, there's this remarkable solidarity among the oppressed. But what the writer of Ecclesiastes is pointing out is that, and we've experienced this too, unfortunately, is that one thing that's made this present season so hard isn't just the existence of the virus itself, but the existence of oppressors trying to capitalize upon the virus. Human beings, our fellow humans, not some sort of invisible enemy, but our fellow human beings oppressing other human beings, whether we've witnessed that or experienced that, hopefully, if we're, whether we are the ones being the oppressors, hopefully that's not the case, but we know this to be the case, that in this world, in every situation, this world is a place, this is a fallen world, a present evil age, where there are actually oppressors bringing about tears, cause, causing, not some virus, not some natural phenomenon, but human beings, man's inhumanity to man. And Koaleth just engages right with it. He looks at life and he says, this is what I see. And so he despairs of life. He says, if this is what life is like, then better is the one that's just never even been born. I'm not sure I still can even endure in this age, he says there in verse 2 and 3. The dead who are already dead, they're more fortunate than us still alive. I wish I was dead is essentially what he's saying when I see how much oppression there is in this world. And he goes there. A second reality of our fallen world he takes us into is verses 4 through 8. Just this whole question of what is the motivation for moving through life. And the second reality is he says most people are motivated by vanity and meaningless pursuits. They move through life for their own selfish purposes. And I look around and I see what get, whatever gets you through the night, it's all right, it's all right. And most people's whatever is something destructive or meaningless. The strategies we adopt for getting through this life are as fulfilling as trying to grasp handfuls of wind. And so this is a second reality he sees here. In this present world, a third reality, verses 9 through 12, he looks around and thankfully, even though there's only four or five of us here this morning, there's not zero people here this morning. 
<laughs> it would be even more bizarre and just ridiculous for me to come to an empty sanctuary. And I know many of my fellow pastors are having to do that. Here's the third reality Ecclesiastes takes us into in this chapter, the problem of loneliness. Two are better than one because if, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Woe to the one sheltering in place by themselves with no one looking after them, no one checking in on them. We are doing what we can, of course, as the body of Christ here. No one needs shelter in place by themselves and be left alone because any one of us can be participating in this Zoom worship service and participating in our weekly uh, prayer services and participating in our life group meetings. And so because of technology, because of even the, the phone, the, 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 uh, that old-fashioned technology of the phone, uh, we need not be left alone. And yet this world is a place where there's just so much loneliness. And Ecclesiastes, Koalith, he talks about that. The, hard, the hardship of living this life, in Han Solo, as it were, by yourself. And then the fourth reality of this present fallen world, this present evil age that Koalath takes us into is the reality of foolish and arrogant kings. Foolish and arrogant kings. This is very personal for Koalath, very personal for King Solomon. As you may remember, he was the product of adultery. His own father, the king, was in that season of his life a foolish and arrogant king who thought he could just take another man's wife and kill that man. Solomon knows what he's talking about. He's experienced this world which is ruled by foolish and arrogant kings. Some years ago, when I was in the Navy, my ship was sent into the Persian Gulf to go right into the middle of a war between two foolish and arrogant and wicked kings. We were sent into the middle of the Iran-Iraq War back in 1987. Iran ruled by Saddam Hussein, who used chemical weapons against his own people, the Kurdish people. Iran, Iraq ruled by Saddam Hussein, Iran ruled by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who sent child soldiers with toy guns into battle to be cannon fodder. And we're sent into the middle of this because Iran was putting mines in the Persian Gulf into, the, into international waters to, to blow up oil tankers and naval ships and things. And my ship was sent in to do mine sweeping, the largest Navy ship that had ever been in the Persian Gulf to that point. We're sent into the middle of this war between two foolish and arrogant kings. Koalef knew this world well. And I always remember reading the testimony, as it were, of Ayatollah Khomeini about all that. He said, we do not repent. Despite close to a million Iranian casualties, a million of his own citizens dead, over 300 billion in cost to his country in this war with Iraq, children being used as cannon fodder, he said, we do not repent, nor are we sorry for even a single moment for our performance during the war. 
foolish and arrogant kings who never admit they're wrong. This is this present evil age. And Koalath takes us right there. Well, that's the work of Koalath. That's his job, to be a test pilot, as it were. But you may remember, we've said this, I think every week we've preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, that Koalath had a deeper job, a deeper purpose. A, his, the heart of what he was doing isn't just to describe reality. Like, what a fun sermon this has been so far, right? Everybody's just in the sanctuary. People are just laughing. There's, no, no, this has not been a fun sermon. Koalath's job isn't merely to describe reality. His deepest purpose is summarized by Peter. Peter in the New Testament tells us this is the purpose of all the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament writers. This is Koalath's purpose. His purpose was to prophesy about the grace that was to be ours in this present day. That the Spirit of Christ in him was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. This is Koalath's deepest job. Why has he gone there in each of these four ways and more? Why has he done this? Because he is pointing us to Christ. He's showing us what Christ will come and do. He is showing us that Christ will come and enter into this world and suffer and be resurrected with subsequent glories to give us grace. This is the purpose of Koalath in chapter 4. So, we're going to return to chapter 4 in just a moment. But before we do that, let's now go to where Koaleth was pointing, to our New Testament reading this morning, John chapter 20, that remarkable account of Jesus after the resurrection, appearing to his disciples, 10 of the 12, Judas had left the whole thing. He appeared to the other 10, not yet Thomas, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe what you 10 are telling me unless I myself am able to put my hands in the pierced hands of Jesus, in his pierced side. And Jesus then, a week or so later, appears to Thomas. And here's the words. We remember, this is what we've heard already. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not respond to the hardship and suffering of this world by just folding your hands in the disbelief of emptiness and passivity or in the frantic panic of trying to fix everything by your own efforts, striving after wind. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe that I am resurrected here and now. Receive this as a handful of quietness. Faith is a handful of quietness. A handful of quietness is faith. Faith in Christ. This rest that Christ gives when you believe that he really is resurrected. I hope you have been reading the weekly pastoral letters that Preston, on behalf of the session, has been sending out each Tuesday morning. And in particular, this past Tuesdays, go back and reread it if you'd like, he pointed us to that rest that handful of quietness that we see in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. 
the Sabbath rest, the eternal rest that Christ has won for us. And you remember what Preston said in his pastoral letter. He pointed us to the fact that there really is this gift given to us now from the resurrected Christ of an existential peace. We are at peace with God. I am not at peace with the coronavirus, and neither are you. <laughs> we are not at peace with this fallen world, this present. There's not a lot of peace in that realm. But the most important peace, that vertical peace with the God who had been your enemy, but is now your friend and your father, that peace is ours. We can rest. That peace isn't going anywhere. It's been won for us by Christ. It can't be undone. <sighs> we can just rest in this love that Christ has for us now, this handful of quietness. But you remember there is another, I mean, I don't want to be silly, but I want to refer to it as almost like a bumper sticker verse in that powerful passage of John 20. The first one we've just been talking about. Do not disbelieve, but believe. But there is another sort of bumper sticker verse where Jesus then says to Thomas, after he lets Thomas touch him and feel that he's resurrected, he really is the Christ, resurrected. He then says to Thomas, blessed are you, for you have seen and believed. But here's the, here's the other thing for us today, for you today, for me today. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who are not given the privilege of physically touching the physically resurrected body of Christ, which was a possibility had you lived then and there. But for the rest of the world and the rest of us and the rest of the epochs and ages, it's not a possibility. And so Jesus, with us in mind, says, blessed are you. Blessed are those beyond you, Thomas who have not seen, but believe. We have a, I'm not sure how you all online are accessing um, the bulletin during these weeks of virtual worship. Uh, um, just for my, for my, in my case, these past weeks, I've just been following along on whatever's put up on the screen and haven't like downloaded the bulletin. So I'm not sure if anybody downloaded the bulletin and if so, the whole meditation the, the, on, the, on the first page, a poem from John Updike. But I want to read that for us now. And if you want to refer to it, you can just Google it or find it in the first page of the downloaded bulletin. Listen now to this poem that Updike, John Updike wrote uh, back in 1960, 1961. Seven stanzas at Easter. Listen to this. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh. Ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, 
making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. No, no, no. We Christians, we do not remonstrate against. We do not protest against the physicality of Christ's resurrection. Unlike Thomas, we cannot put our hands physically into his pierced hands, but we embrace that as truth. He really is resurrected. This Christ came in the flesh, into the midst of this fallen world, into the midst of the world that Ecclesiastes 4 describes. The early church fathers had to contend against some bad ideas about who Christ was. And without detailing all the bad ideas, all the heresies, these ideas that Christ was somehow in between man and God, more than a man, less than God, or that he came and only appeared to take on the flesh, or that he came and was a spirit, all these bad ideas. Against those bad ideas, the early church fathers saw what the scriptures teach, what John chapter 20 teaches, what Ecclesiastes 4 teaches must be necessary. Namely, that Christ came in the flesh. And Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the early church fathers, he summed it up this way. Again, my mind only really remembers bumper stickers, but his summary was this. He, he put it this way. What he did not take on, he cannot redeem. What he did not take on, he cannot redeem. Did Christ take on all four of those realities that we see in Ecclesiastes 4? Or not. He did to redeem them. This is worthy of your meditation all week long. We don't have time for a long meditation on each of these four things, but very briefly, the tears of the oppressed, Christ entering into this world. One of, uh, one of the members of our life group is, is a medical uh, um, service provider. And she was telling us last night at Life Group how the frontline workers are just working their butts off and just, just in it every day. And that management has come by regularly to give them pep talks, to give them pep talks. But they don't understand what they're really going through. And they're trying to get them to work more hours and get more customers. And she said, it would actually be more helpful if management just stayed away. They're trying to comfort us, but they're not in it with us. Is that what Jesus did? No, he entered into the flesh. He entered into this world where the oppressed are made to weep. 
any fair reading of the Gospels, you see Christ taking the side of the oppressed, never the oppressor, weeping with those who weep. Christ is right with us in this fallen world where the tears of the oppressed continues to be a reality. Christ is here with us. Secondly, entering into this world where people are confused about their motivations and they either just want to give up and fold up, fold their hands and just consume their own flesh, nibble their fingernails or whatever, or just strive and actively panic about everything. Christ comes into this world and he embodied neither of those ridiculous forms of disbelief. He embodied this slow, steady progress, moving forward with faith in his Father that now we in partnership with him can move forward at that same pace, a handful of quietness. Thirdly, the problem of loneliness. This world often values independence. I mean, in, in some ways, of course, that, that is important. I mean, we want our children to be able to learn how to do their own laundry. Maybe they're learning that now during pandemic and cook their own meals. Independence is, is of course, a, a great value. But here, Ecclesiastes, in talking about this problem of loneliness, is making a deeper point. Yes, in some realms, progress is measured by increasing independence. But the book of, of Ecclesiastes is telling us that the way of wisdom, in that way, progress is measured by growing interdependence. This is plainly what Christ came and did. He didn't come and say, I'm going to find 12 followers and I'm going to have them all self-isolate in 12 places and never communicate by Zoom. I'm going to cr create 12 independent, awesome people. No, no, no. He created a body, a family, growth and interdependence. Our neighbor was asking us yesterday about how is our church doing in this time? And I don't know if this is a correct answer, but this is what I said, and it's basically my assessment. I said, I think those that have valued the church are somehow becoming even more connected with each other. And those in our church who haven't yet gotten it, that they need the church, might still be a little bit more on the outskirts. It's not been helpful for them. I'm not sure if that's an accurate assessment, and whether that's accurate or not, Here's the truth. Jesus comes to give you the gift that conquers loneliness of interdependence, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And then finally, did Jesus enter into this world of foolish and arrogant kings like Saddam Hussein, like Ayatollah Khomeini, like Caesar, like Pilate, and remain aloof and standoffish and do nothing about it? Or did he enter into this world and become a king? A king who serves, who washes our feet. A king who demonstrates, I will give all of my strength and power and wealth on behalf of my people. Christ entered into this world and really did that. Had you been there, you too could have put your hands in his pierced side with Thomas. He really did do that. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not say, oh, the resurrection of Christ, I'm just going to be indifferent to it. Despite the fact that it changed world history and history itself is marked by B.C. and A.D. 
and it's just changed the whole world. I myself am going to disbelieve by being indifferent to the resurrection. No, no, no. Don't fold your hands. You'll end up having nothing but yourself. Do not disbelieve in the resurrection in that manner. Nor should you disbelieve the resurrection by saying, well, it's all well and good that he was resurrected, but I've got to take care of myself and strive after everything. No, no, no. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Christ is resurrected, ascended to heaven, and now with us in his body. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us this gift of faith. In fact, giving the gift of faith to every person who has ever asked for it. Anyone who has ever asked for faith with integrity from their heart, he who seeks finds, has been granted that gift of faith by you. Push away, mortify, put to death our disbelief in whatever forms it takes And give us a deeper faith, a true belief in the resurrection of Jesus, his presence with us now by his spirit, that he is indeed in this present evil age along with us making all things new. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for the Redeemer, your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.